Good morning. Good morning. Today's reading comes from Judges chapter 3. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, we're continuing. Uh, we're into our second message in a series called Judges in Our Own Eyes. We're taking a look at the book of Judges. This is after uh, Israelites have come into Canaan. They possess the land, and everything spirals downward. It is a debacle. And it covers about 400 years, 1400 B.C., all the way up to just prior to when Saul was named the first king. So last week was our introductory message. This week, uh, the message is titled Obedience idolatry, and the choices along the way. We're going to be taking a look at the third chapter in the book of Judges. Obedience, idolatry, and the choices along the way. Now, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. I'm guessing no one's going to shoot up their hands, but here it goes. How many of you, looking back at an epic moment of failure, it could be moral failure, it could be financial failure, it could be any number of different things, looking back at that moment of failure backtracking, say, 10 years before, actively sought to develop a plan to ruin your life? Anyone? <laughs> Nobody. I didn't expect anybody to raise their hand. But that's, that's common. That's common, right? You find, yourself, you find yourself in a place where you're just like, how could I be so stupid? You're experiencing pain, which you brought on yourself or at least contributed to, Right? And you're in serious pain and you look back at all the choices you made and you're just, you're frustrated and angry with yourself, but you couldn't see it. You can only see, you can only see those dumb choices in hindsight. You never see them on the front end. They don't seem like dumb choices. Now that's true of a culture. That's true of, of, a, of a community. It's true of a nation. It's also true for us as individuals. We're going to see the beginning of the downward progression and how it works. Three things we're going to see in this text this morning. Number one, the test. The test is what will I worship? What will you worship? What will we worship? That's the test that God puts before us. The second thing we're going to see is the descent. We're going to see the descent. We're going to see how idolatry happens. Now, some of you are like, idolatry? What's that? Well, you weren't here last week, but if you're not sure, the goal is for you to see it, to see it, that all of us are, 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 fall prey to it, and it's very easy to slip into even though we don't see it. We're going to see how it happens, and then we're going to see in Judges chapter 3, 
the short-term deliverance that they received, that they received, and then by way of application, we're going to see how the deliverer, Jesus Christ, delivers us from said idolatry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We are in desperate need of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to things we just cannot see. And truthfully, we don't really want to see. We would just assume stay uh, with our heads in the sand and not acknowledge the clear holds of the enemy on our, our own lives, even as believers, Lord. So, Father, we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit to make sense of the Word of God. Help me to preach and teach in such a way that Jesus is lifted up and exalted. We pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, the context. The test is what will I worship? So the context is they did not drive out the nations as they were instructed. They were instructed to go into Canaan and drive out the Canaanites, the Hivites, the, the, all of those different ites. They were c- commanded to drive them out because... They were the instrument of God's judgment on these people. They were the instrument of God's judgment on these people. Now, they didn't do so. Uh, They they did it part way, but they're like, you know, we can subject these people and they can be forced labor. It's good for the economy. Let's do that. Well, they left them there. They left them there. And these are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Sidonites, the Hittites lived among Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel. There's a test here. It's like God says, okay, drive them out. They're like, nope, we're not going to do that. God's like, fine, don't drive them out. But they are going to be a thorn in your side and they are going to trip you up. They're going to test you to see whether or not you were truly obedient to me. So that's the context. To know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses, by the hand of Moses. So that's the context. That's the context. That's the test. Now, let's go backwards. Before they went into Canaan, when they had just left Egypt, this is weeks after crossing the Red Sea, they received the Ten Commandments. Commandment number two is right here. This is the commandment. He says, you shall have no other gods before me, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And then you shall not make for yourself a carved image. He's talking about idolatry. Or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate me. So here's the deal. We talked about this last week, but this is important to understand. Worship, worship is what humans do, period, full stop. Doesn't matter if you're a Christian, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, everyone worships. Now, what do I mean by worship? Worship is ascribing ultimate worth to something. That's why you don't need to be a Christian. You don't even need to be a theist. You just need to ascribe ultimate worth to something. So God says, I am supremely valuable above everything else in the universe, and you should ascribe worth and value to me. It's not that other things are worthless. It's that I don't want you to elevate them to my status of worthiness. They can't provide for you. They didn't make you. They didn't create the universe. Okay, so... These, these things are not necessarily bad, but they are not ultimate. So don't elevate anything. You shall have no other gods beside me, before me, in the near vicinity of. I'm it. 
And don't make an idol of those things which you value. Just don't do it. And if you do, there's going to be consequences. So that's the nature of worship. That's the nature of idolatry. That's the nature of idolatry. So they move in, and they're surrounded by their neighbors who are idolaters. That's the test. The question is, will you continue to worship the Lord your God, or will you begin to worship the idols, the gods of your neighbors? We'll see. Predictably, failure and the descent into idolatry. Let's say, take a look. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons. And they served their gods. They served their gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. And they served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. How does this even happen? You can see it right there if you're paying attention. You can see it right there. Let's let's break this down. First of all, a couple things. Baal, Ashtoreth. Those are the local deities. Baal, Baal is the storm god. The storm god. Now, the Canaanites' chief value as a culture, every culture has a supreme value. So does ours. So does ours. Their supreme value is the land. Will it produce? So Baal, being the storm god, he's the one who brings, supposedly, he brings the rains. He brings the rains. Now, that matters a lot when you live in an arid country. If, if, the, if the crops don't produce, if, if the livestock doesn't reproduce and families can't reproduce, the culture just dies, literally. So their chief value is survival. And for survival, the land needs to be fertile. The land needs to be fertile. The people need to be fertile. The cattle, the the livestock need to be fertile. So Baal, their supreme value is that the land produce. Baal is the storm god. He provides the rain. And so the practice of Baal worship included going to a temple to initiate uh, sexual rites with a prostitute, both male and female. And that was said to enhance the fertility of, of the land and the people. So that was a part of their worship. And Ashtoreth is the, is the female cohort of Baal. So very, very weird. Very shocking. Shocking for an Israelite. They hear about, they do what? That's disgusting. That's gross. That's gross. And that's Joshua's generation. They come in and they all followed the Lord as long as Joshua was alive. But they moved in. First of all, they see the Canaanites and the Sidonites and the Philistines as, as, as enemies that worship these weird gods and do these awful practices, right? And, and then they come in and then they're neighbors. And, and as neighbors, they're like, oh, Fred and Barney or Fred and Wilma next door. They're, they're just weird. You know, they go to that shrine cult prostitute thing. They worship Baal. That's just awful. That's just awful. And that's how you see it. That's how you see it. But, but it turns out, it turns out that after a couple barbecues with Fred and Wilma, you, you, discover, you discover that although they do some weird stuff and their ethics are horrible to you, they still love their kids. 
they still like the same things you like. I mean, they're human beings created in the image of God. And you're like, well, they're not all that different. Their religion is totally whacked and their practices are totally whacked. But they're not terribly different aside from the idolatry than we are. Just need to be careful that we don't intermix with their religion. So there's a, there's a moving closer to them. But little pebbles, she falls in love with Bam Bam. You get the idea. So the kids grow up together. The kids grow, and you tell the kids, you tell, this is our God. We worship Yahweh. We worship the one true God. We shall have no other gods beside him. Don't worship our neighbor's gods, Baal and Ashtoreth. We're not, we're not like them. They're different from us. And the little kid's like, yeah, that's, that's right, mom and dad. But you're playing in the backyard with them, and you, you're, you see your neighbors just like you. And you grew up seeing them worship Baal in the backyard, and it becomes less offensive to you, more familiar to you as a child. And then you fall in love with said neighbor, and your parents really don't approve of the relationship, but what are you going to do? Love is love, and so they get married, and then... Now, you're not a Baal worshiper, but your husband is. And now the crops go bad. Now the crops go bad. The, the crops are failing. And, and you say, we need to pray to Yahweh. And your husband says, we need to pray to Baal. And you're like, that doesn't sound right. doesn't sound right. But, but you, you acquiesce. And so now you, 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 worship, you worship the Lord, but... You, come, you hedge your bets, you, you worship Baal too. You got, I mean, the crop needs to be produced. You got to have rain. And so now there's, there's dual worship going on in the home and then the next generation comes and what do they see? they see? They see both mom and dad worshiping different gods. What difference does it make? Just choose one. So they choose both. They've been culturally assimilated fully. That's exactly how it works. Now, Baal and Ashtoreth, that's just weird, right? It's not relevant to our context. How many of you grew up in Iowa City? Raise your hand. How many of you are transplants? Those of you that are transplants, did you find it strange that there are literally dozens of herky idols constructed all all over the city? How many of you found this to be unusual? Unusual. And not only that, but the locals, they go to this temple uh, once a week, 70 plus thousand of them, and they paint their faces and they all wear this religious, this religious garb and they, they all go and you think, this is so strange. They spend inordinate amounts of money on this and, and they, 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 that's the, where their tithes and their offerings go and, and they, have, they have feasts to this herky God every Saturday before the gladiators come and fight in his name. And, and, and it's like, what a strange pagan ritual. But then after a while you've lived here, it becomes so normal that you don't even notice it anymore and your kids are full-blown idolaters. I'm a fourth-generation idolater. My grandfather was a rabid Hawkeye fan, drove every Saturday from Newton to, to Iowa City. My father came and played football here and he's a radical idolater as well. I am the third generation and my son is the fourth generation. So we'll break the cycle with the fifth generation, right? The sins of the fathers. Not, it's not a sin to be a Hawkeye fan, but I'm simply, 
illustrating, I'm simply illustrating that what someone coming into the culture sees as just flat out weird becomes totally normative to everybody else that's in the culture. It's not different. Now, the stakes are higher. The stakes are higher. I'm not, by the way, Hawkeye sports can be a literal form of idolatry. Now, in, that, in this context, I'm not saying necessarily that it is, but it can be. It can be. So that's, that's innocuous, it's harmless, but it's an example of how this works. This is not innocuous, it's not harmless, but what would you say the cultural idol is that Christians are engaged in as much as the pagans that surround, our, surround us? What would, you say, what would you say that is? I heard somebody say it. We'll just go with materialism. One of them. There's, lo- there's lots of small g o d gods. There's lots of gods. But lo- Jesus said, you can't, you can't serve both God and money. You'll love the one and hate the other. You cannot worship God and mammon or money. You can't worship them both. Now, this is thousands of years later. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And some of you are like, well, we don't, we don't worship Money. How many of you worship money? That's what I thought. No hands go up. Shocker! Shocker! All right, now, I'm going to read to you something that, that was written by a retail analysis by the name of Victor Lebo in 1955. You ready? Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. This man is an economist. He is not a Christian. I don't know. Maybe he is a Christian. He's speaking about what our culture needs to fuel our economy. I'm going to read that again. Productive economy demands that we make consumerism our way of life, that we convert buying and using of goods into rituals. Before World War II, World War I, advertising, advertising existed. But the form of advertising didn't look the way it did after World War I. And here's what it looked like. You would read in a newspaper or you would read in a periodical. It would say, said product does these things and it will meet your needs. If you needed to drive nails, well, this hammer, it drives nails really well. It's sturdy, it's constructed, and this is what you need to do the job. It was needs-based. This product will meet the demand that you have to do this task. End of story. But when the economy began to shift and it began to to drive the whole, what what I just read for you, they realized that, you know, all of these things, these Model T Fords and all these things that we're building, they're just going to sit in warehouses. So we need to create demand where demand isn't. So we can't just tell them that this product will meet your needs. We need to tell, tell these people that you as a human being will be validated if you have this product. That is totally different 
And that was brand new after World War I. But we're the fish that swim in the water and we don't know any different. If somebody from 1860s were transported into our generation and they looked how much we consumed, they would be shocked, stunned. Since 1916, the homes that we live in are 10 times larger than the homes that they lived in. Is that, is that a need? No, it's, it's not. Do you, this is a media campaign, a Madison Avenue campaign to capitalize on human beings' tendency to covet. Do you understand? Do you understand that if someone from the first century in the early church were to be transported into our culture, they would see the way that the people that call themselves followers of Christ spend their money and don't spend their money, and they would be utterly abhorred. To us, it's just the way the world works. End of story. We don't even think about it. So, yeah, it's easy to poke fun, or not poke fun, wag our, our heads at the, at the silly Israelites and their worship of Baal. And it's, it's funny to think about how, how an Iowa State fan can move into Iowa City and then be, but then their kids are full-blown Hawkeyes. That's kind of humorous. But then when you look at what real idolatry is in terms of the way that we can't see it and you think of the consequences, it's like, well, that's not very funny. Or if, if a prophet comes into the area or a preacher begins to point out said idols, where's the nearest cliff? We're throwing this guy. Who Are you insinuating that capitalism is a bad thing? I'm not saying that. But I bet you some of you thought that I was. He's gone liberal. He's just like AOC. I'm not talking about politics here, people. I'm talking about idolatry. And if you want to be complicit and be completely blind to it, we will be no different than the people in the book of Judges who are bowing down to Baal. But everyone does it, so what difference does it make? Well, it makes a big difference. That's how you are given over to your sin. And you don't even know it's sin. I know, I know that I'm stepping real close to the edge here, and this is, this is, Brooks, I'm not comfortable where this is going. Well, this is the way it is. On the front end, when you're considering idolatry, but there's a cost to it. Idolatry self-check. Never mind materialism. That might be one of your things. Here's the deal. Every single one of us can't see what we're blind to. That's the definition of blindness, right? You can see the speck in, your, in the culture's eye, those crazy people that have abandoned truth, but tend to be blind to the log in your own eye. So how do you figure out what, what you're predisposed to? Idolatry self-check. What do you value most? That's the question. What do we value mo- What do you as an individual? What do I as an individual? Well, so I don't know. Well, here's some questions that can help you get to the root of that. Where do you place your hope? 
Where do you place your hope? What gives you joy? What do you think will bring you joy if you have it? What do you sacrifice for? What are you willing to sacrifice in order to obtain? What do you think most about? What consumes your thoughts? What do you worry about? What angers you? If you can answer those questions, you'll get a lot closer to the things which you value most, which you're tempted to place right alongside Jesus. Here's the thing. I'm not saying that you don't love Jesus and you aren't saved and you're not justified in Christ. I'm not, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that we as Christians, we as Christians often take Jesus and we put him amongst a pantheon of many different gods. Oh, he's the big one, but there's all these other lesser gods that we we ascribe worth to in a way that we sacrifice for, in a way that we're threatened if, if, if they won't provide for us. And we look to, we look to these things and these entities or these, these things to provide for us, and we can't see them. I don't know what it is for you. I gave you a couple examples. Materialism might not be your issue, but I'm just going to guess it's a big one in our culture. So, the deliverance. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushian, uh, rest in the am, king of the Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served him, Cush, rest easy for me to say, eight years. Now, some of you are probably your organizers, and you're thinking, it's strange that you would put that verse under deliverance, and you would title it deliverance that God sold them over to a pagan entity that would persecute them and oppress them. Why would that be deliverance? Because God's anger is an expression of his love. Why was he angry? Because he loved them intensely. Why is a spouse angry when their spouse cheats on them? Because they love them intensely. God's anger is a product of his goodness, his righteousness, and his love. And that anger causes him to act in a way which is going to bring about their deliverance by causing them pain, giving them over. Fine, you want to worship Baal? You're going to serve, an int- or serve a nation that worships Baal. They're going to oppress you. You're going to experience pain because of your idolatry. And the people of Israel served him eight years. But when the people of the Lord cried out to the Lord... That, see, they don't notice, notice when the economy is awesome, when the rains are falling, when you get along with your neighbors. There's no crying out. You just continue with your Baal worship. But once someone who worshiped Baals puts the hammer down, and you're like, no, wait, what? How'd this happen? This hurts. We're being oppressed. We're not the majority anymore. We're the minority. Now, all of a sudden, you think, this is not right, and you cry out for deliverance. Why? Because God loves you enough to let you experience the pain of your idolatrous choices. It's amazing how practical an old, old, old book is in modern times. Our situations are not any different. The names of the gods have changed, but it's still idolatry, and it's still being given over to our sin, and it's still bearing the consequences of that idolatry. And the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So this is 
Caleb's nephew. You remember Caleb, him and, him and Joshua went into the land and they were the two spies that were faithful and said, God's giving us the land, let's go in. His nephew is the one that God raised up. He's the first of the judges. And, and, and it's interesting, there's nothing negative about him said here. He's one of the ones that's like, yeah, he's a pretty good, he's a pretty solid character. You can read about him in the first or the last couple chapters of the book of, uh, of Joshua. He's, he's a good man. He's a righteous man. And God uses him. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And he prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. I cannot say that guy's name. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then... Othniel, the son of Kenes, died. And then you read in verse 12 through the rest of the chapter, the whole cycle started over again. See, this is a temporary deliverance. God delivered Israel temporarily from their oppressors. But what did they not repent of? They're still idolaters. As long as, as Othniel was on the, on the scene... Things went well, but as soon as there was... A, once you remove the strong man from the stage, well, you know the saying. When the cat's away, the mice. But whenever you remove the figurehead... So they were not constrained internally. They were constrained externally from their idolatry. But as soon as Othniel, the judge, is, is, as soon as he dies, they go right back to it. And then we have another cycle. And then God raises up Ehud. He's the next one. And some of you are like, dang it, I was hoping you would preach that story because I love when the sword goes into the fat guy's stomach and his intestines spill out. Some of you are like, that's in there? Yeah, read it. But we're not going to cover it. We're not going to cover it. Uh, Yeah, deliverance is short term. Cycle restarts itself. So I don't want to just leave us with a temporary deliverance. This book is in the scripture for our benefit. Paul speaks of, of, of this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, These things were written about them, those who, who wandered in the wilderness, because he said they gave themselves over to idols. He says, don't be like them. Now, this is New Testament. He's talking to people in Corinth. He says, don't be idolaters. He says, flee from idolatry. You better believe that we are just as susceptible to idolatry as they were susceptible to idolatry in the book of Judges. It takes a different form. It takes a different form, but we are just as susceptible. And Othniel's not going to be raised up to deliver you from your idolatry. And there's not going to be a political strong man or strong woman that's going to fix our culture. It's not going to happen. The only way that you are going to be set free, the only way that the body of Christ is going to have a sanctifying element to our culture, being salt and light, is if the body of Christ, if the bride of Christ is washed with the word of God and becomes radiant, holy, and pure. That requires that the body of Christ get its house in order and repent of its own sins and stop for the love of all that is good, 
thinking and believing that the main problem, not saying it's not a problem, the main problem is those people out there. If we are full-blown idolaters, we should not complain when we are run over by a nation given to idols. So, how can I be delivered? How can you be delivered from your personal idols, which might not be my personal idols? Look at what Jesus says. He said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him. This is key. Look at what they said. They answered him. We're offspring of Abraham, and, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How do you say you will become free? What did they assume? Here, here's, here's the thing. They looked at the book of Judges, and they said, we're not like those people. We don't have the Philistines ruling over us. We're not enslaved. We're free. We've never been enslaved to anyone. You see, they, it's ironic because technically they are enslaved to Rome. They can't see that. But that's not what they're talking about. No one's telling them what to do. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Here's the question. Do you sin? Yes. Why? Because you're an idolater. What is idolatry? It's putting your faith and trust in something which is not God. God says, listen, I'll provide for you. You just got to trust me. And we say, yeah, you say that, but it's not raining, so I got to make an offering to Baal. I mean, you don't say that. God says, trust me. He said, yeah, you say that, but I got a mortgage to pay, and I got yeah, to do this, I got to do that, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do this. There's no time. I got to provide. I got to make it happen. I got to slay the giants. I can't. I get, yes, I know I need to have you. I need to go to church 1.2 times a month. I need to do that at least. I need to have some Christian paraphernalia on the back of my bumper. I got to look the part. And, and Jesus, I love you. I was baptized when I was 10. But, you know, what's going to make my life different, meaningful? All these other things I'm pursuing. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The, way, the chains don't feel all that heavy at first. They don't. One choice at a time. Like Jacob Marley and, and, and Ebenezer Scrooge. These chains which he drug around in the afterlife. He said, I put this chain together when I lived on this earth. One link at a time. And they don't seem that heavy at first until the consequences bear down and crush you. But that's the mercy of God. He's letting you feel pain so that you would turn, recognize, and and he says, a slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. How do you become free? You go to the Lord. You go to Christ. Two points before we close. The choice is not simply good versus evil. The choice is what am I going to worship? Who am I going to worship? What am I going to ascribe as ultimate value? Okay, now this is where repentance comes in. John says, if you say you're without sin, let me rephrase that. If you say you're without idolatry, you're a liar and the truth of God is not in you. Some of you are like, Brooks, you're perverting the word. No, I am not. All sin, all sin, and I mean every single sin, is a product of a violation of the first and second commandment. There's no exceptions. You cannot violate commandments three through 10 without first having another God next to God. 
That's the point. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you come to me, I will put myself in your heart in the form of the Holy Spirit. And I will give you my love. It's not that you loved me, but it's that I first loved you and gave you my love. And that that overpowering love for me will push aside all other competing affections and then I'll set you free. And I'll set you free. And you'll have life and you'll have it abundantly. I'm not saying that you're not going to be persecuted. I'm not saying that you're going to suffer, but you will have joy. And you don't need to consume all that your neighbors consume because I will feed you manna from heaven. I am the bread of life. I will provide for you. Now, listen, people, I'm preaching to you, but I'm listening to the words that I'm saying and I'm thinking, Brooks, you should really believe what you're preaching. I need it as much as you do. And that's why John says, when we sin, not if we sin, confess our sins to the Lord. He is faithful and just to purify us, forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't just give us a pardon. He helps us identify what our affections are. And when we repent of those, he washes us and he makes us righteous and he increases our love for him so that our, his, his value increases in our own estimation. And that's what sanctification is. But it, you can't have it without repentance. So for homework, I'm asking you to do something really difficult. Spend some time this week talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, what are my idols? If you come back and you say, I can't find any, try harder. You're the fish swimming in the water and you can't describe it. I'm saying this not because I want to be heavy, but I want us to be real, myself included so that we can experience God's best. Not just look for temporary deliverance from the terrible culture around us, but look for deliverance from sin, which is destroying us and them. And here's the thing. When God washes his bride and makes her radiant, she becomes a beacon. She becomes a light. She becomes a witness to a decaying culture. And every time revival happens, whether it's in this continent or, or Europe or whether it's in Africa, it always starts with the people of God repenting of their idols and being washed. And then they're renewed. Then they're revived. And then the culture sees there's a difference. That's the gospel. And it's not temporary deliverance. As we close in prayer this morning, if you have needs, you're hurting, you're weighed down by your own sin, or you have a prayer request, physical needs, spiritual needs, I want to encourage you to come forward. Let us know. We'd love to pray with you up front. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you are a deliverer from sin. Thank you, Lord, that you allow us to feel the consequences of the weight of our idolatry. But Lord, the truth of the matter is we're not sure what our idols are. Lord, would you reveal those to us as individuals and remind us what it says in 1 John chapter 2, that when we sin, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ who is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins so that we might draw near to him with confidence. Lord, we just pray that you would encourage each one of us, all of us, together corporately and individually to draw near to you, to receive cleansing 
from the idols that we're not even sure that we worship or we were just made aware by you. God, and would you remind us, Lord, that we don't clean up ourselves. You clean us up. Thank you, Jesus, that you paid the penalty for our idolatry. And Lord, thank you that you wash us with the word. Make us a spotless bride. Father, we worship you because you are worthy of our worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go in grace. We'll see you next week.